Well, good morning and welcome to our gathering. Um, Take your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, last Sunday, we looked at Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16. And we learned about true peace. Because there is fake or false peace, right? So we learned about true peace and about how Christ has secured it for believers. We defined true peace as vertical peace, that's peace with God. And we defined true peace as horizontal peace, that's peace with one another. We learned that the Ephesians uh, knew Christ as Savior And as Lord, but they did not know him as peace. Uh, They didn't understand his twofold peace work, how he established peace for them. And the evidence of that is that there might have been in battling and in fighting in the church. Uh, There definitely was in some of the other churches in the region, uh, you know, these doctrinal or ritualistic differences and these sorts of things. And so there were these little skirmishes between this group and that group and all that. And so they very obviously didn't understand peace or the concept of it or what Christ had done for them. And so obviously Paul sought to address the issue. Uh, He addressed both groups that had formed, the circumcision group, uh, which was Jewish converts, and then the uncircumcision group, which was Gentile converts. They didn't get circumcised in those days. It wasn't part of their history or heritage or religion, if you will. And so these two battles, these two groups battled and and sort of fought, I guess, or they were at least headed there. Peace was disturbed. There was trouble. We would say the peace and the unity of this church and the churches in the region was being, at the very minimum, threatened. And as I said, Paul was concerned about this, and this is why he wrote about peace, about unity, about oneness in Ephesians 2.11, all the way up into Ephesians 3.6. So really like an entire book, if you will, or an entire chapter, if you will, on the subject of peace, unity, and oneness. This morning, we're going to discover, learn about uh, what God is creating for himself in the church and how peace, unity, and oneness play a massively important role or part in what God is actually doing in the church, his purpose for the church, what he's actually creating in it for himself. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what he's creating in the church for himself, or we're going to look at how peace, oneness, unity, these things play into that and complement that. So our text will be chapter 2, verses 17 through 22 which means we're basically wrapping up chapter 2 this morning. We've been in it for a little while, and we will bring it to a close, Lord willing, unless he intervenes and causes me to do something else, which he can do, by the way, right? Why would he do that? It's his sermon to begin with. Yes, but sometimes he decides to say something in addition to that or differently at the moment. But in any case, we're going to try to wrap it up. So let's read our main passage. We'll pray one more time, and then we'll get to work. Verse 17, I'll pick it up, and it says, And he, Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And he says in the last verse there, 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father... We humbly submit ourselves to you now. We ask that you would remove any distraction, uh, any worldly care or any of these things. Some of these things might be important, but that we wouldn't be distracted by anything right now, that, that you would grant us uh, the ability 
to pay attention, to listen, to learn, to grow, and to put into practice. And so uh, speak to us now about this subject of oneness, peace, unity, this subject of what you're creating in the church and how we as believers are a unique and blessed part of that. So I pray that we would be encouraged in this room today by your spirit, by the Holy Spirit. We would be challenged. Um, If any of us be in error, which is very likely all of us in some sense, I pray that you would correct us um, in love, mercifully, that we would repent in these things. And so have your way, be glorified here. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at 17. This particular text we can look at line by line. The way it's structured, it's not going to be impossible to do that like last week. It was really tough. Again, it says, and he came and preached to you who were far off, or he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. First of all, who was Paul writing about here? Who is it that came and preached peace Well, obviously, he was still referring to Christ uh, back in verse, well, actually in verse 17 here, but I think back in 13, there's a reference to Christ. He kind of, basically everything in chapter 1 and chapter 2, when it talks about in him or any of that, he's talking about Christ. And so he's talking about Christ, okay? So the text could read uh, something like this, that Christ came and preached peace could read that. Maybe you have a translation that actually says that. I don't know. But it is Christ who he's referring to. Question again is who did Christ preach peace to? Uh, Paul pointed to two types of people in the text. Uh, To you who were far off, that is a reference to the Gentiles. We already learned that in the previous verses. Gentiles were not part of the covenant community, part of the Israelite community or any of that. They were separated from God and these sorts of things. And so they were the ones who were far off. So that's who he's talking about, that particular group. To those who were, to those who were near is a reference to the Jews, right? The Jews uh, at the church of Ephesus and in the community, they were the ones who were near to God in that they were covenant people. They had the law, you know, all of the different things. And so he addresses two groups, both just think of it like this, Gentiles and Jews. So he's saying, uh, Christ came and preached peace to both of you. And now that I think about it, back in verse 11 is where he actually kind of brought our attention to these true groups when he said, uncircumcised and the circumcised. So the uncircumcised being Gentiles, the circumcised being Jews. What is, in the text, what is uh, the preaching of peace? What, what does it mean to preach peace? What would it have been that Christ would have preached in regards to peace? Well, obviously, it's the gospel. You know, preaching peace is synonymous with the gospel. It means to preach the gospel. Why? Because the gospel articulates um, how peace with God the Father has been obtained for people, for believers, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Ultimately, the gospel, we refer to it as the good news, and it is that. Part of that good news is that there is a way to have peace with God and then with one another, and it's through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. This is what he did, right? So Paul's claim here is that, and this is what he's saying, his claim is that Christ came and preached peace, the gospel, to Gentiles and Jews in Ephesus. This is what he has said in verse 17. Now, I want you to think about something, okay? Think, first of all, Christ going to Ephesus and preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, so keep that in your mind, but I want you to think about some additional things here. I want you to think about the preaching ministry of Christ, Okay, I'm talking like the Gospels, all right? If you read the Gospels, you will discover several things about his ministry, his preaching ministry. I don't know what's wrong with this thing. It's very aggravated. You will notice several things about his preaching ministry if you look at the Gospels, if you study the Gospels. One of the things that you'll notice is that Christ never traveled to Ephesus. He never went to Ephesus. He never went there. 
Uh, In fact, he never left Palestine or the region of Israel. He never stepped foot out of it. He stayed in that sort of area, in that place. And secondly, another thing you'll notice about his preaching ministry is that Jesus rarely, if ever, preached the gospel to Gentiles. He just didn't. Uh, He even told a Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician, that he had not come for Gentiles. That he had come, what, in Matthew 15, 24, to the lost sheep of Israel. So if we look at the preaching ministry of Christ, and we look at the words of Paul here in our text, we might be led to think that Paul was either wrong, that he contradicted Scripture, or that he was actually referring to something else, something beyond what we see at first glance. And you might be thinking, well, why would you bring this up? The reason why I would bring this up to make this point is because there are a ton of so-called Christians who are skeptics who take verses like this and say, look, the Bible's not trustworthy. It's filled with errors. Christ never went to Ephesus. Paul must be wrong. He must have uh, been on something when he wrote this or whatever. It, there's, there's a contradiction here, and they take these things and they run absolutely wild with them. And of course, what they're actually wanting to do and desiring to do is to actually convince others that the best way to deal with these kinds of so-called discrepancies and things is just to go ahead and disregard Paul's teachings altogether. Just go ahead and take, you know, the 13 epistles or whatever he wrote, and you can read those, and if you can pull something cool out of them, that's fine, but they're not really authoritative. They're not, you know, because there's errors in there. Uh, He contradicts the, the words and ministry of Christ all the time and blah, 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 and so just throw these things out, and many of these same people are, uh, they entitled themselves red-letter Christians. So the whole idea is that we are Christ followers, but we follow the red letters in the Bible, which are the words of Christ, and that's what we stick primarily to, and those are the truly legitimate and trustworthy and authoritative words in the Bible. This is what they say, and I'd like to make it clear that there is no contradiction in our text and that the scriptures are fully accurate and completely trustworthy, and that Paul was referring to something else, something beyond what we see at first glance. Hence the reason why Bible study is so important. And let me break this down for you. Let me attempt to break it down for you at least. First thing that we must understand, at least come to understand, is that Paul did not differentiate between the literal, incarnate, hands-on, in-person, ministry, preaching ministry, if you will, of Christ. He did not differentiate between the ministry, the preaching ministry of Christ, and the preaching ministry of the apostles. He did not differentiate between them. In his view, they were the same thing, okay? When the apostles ministered, it was Christ ministering. When the apostles preached the gospel, it was Christ preaching the gospel. When the apostles healed people, it was Christ healing people. That was Paul's view, okay? So first, you have to understand, if you don't understand this basic reality, you're going to be in trouble and start to think goofy things. Paul did not look at the ministry of Jesus and say, and now we have our ministry. They are the same thing to him. They always have been. And I love how the book of Acts absolutely shows us this. And completely supports his view. The book of Acts is, you want to know what it is? Let me boil it down for you. The book of Acts is a post-ascension, after-ascension account of the ministry of Christ. That's exactly what it is. Okay, the first two lines of Acts actually declare this. Paul wrote, in my former book, speaking of the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, his reader, his audience, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
what Luke has essentially done here is he has told his reader Theophilus that his former book, the Gospel of Luke, shows what Christ did up to his ascension. This is what he said. In my former book, I told you about what Christ did up to the point that he went off into heaven and took the right-hand seat of God. And then what he's saying here, too, is that my current book, like the one that you're actually holding in your hand now and you're about to read, Acts, okay, this is the one he was holding and about to read or he just had started to read. What he's saying here is that it shows what Christ did after his ascension through the apostles. This is essentially what he said in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 in Acts. Acts should be entitled, because if you open your Bible, it's likely that it has a little title there or a little heading there. It should be entitled, The Acts of Christ Through the Apostles, or The Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles, rather than The Acts of the Apostles. This is what it should read, because this is the reality of the book. So, Acts literally illustrates Christ's continued post-ascension work and his expansion of the gospel into the world. That's what Acts is a historical account of. The movement of Christ, the movement of the Holy Spirit, the continued ministry of Christ being worked out through the Holy Spirit That's what it is. Now, Paul understood this. And this is why he did not differentiate between the pre-ascension ministry of Christ and the ministry of the apostles. They were the same thing to him. If he preached, it was Christ who preached. If he healed, it was Christ who healed. If he entered a new town, it was Christ who entered that new town. If he planted a church, it was Christ who planted a church. If he suffered persecution, it was Christ who suffered persecution. Okay? So you need to understand when he writes verse 17... He's not differentiating between what Christ did then and what the apostles did. It's all the same thing to him. So it could very well be the work of Christ, right? Because he was working through the apostle. Another thing to note is that Paul wrote in a figurative way in verse 17. Okay? Because, why? We know that Paul was the one who literally came into Ephesus and preached peace, the gospel, to Gentiles and Jews. And we know that Christ is what? Seated at the right hand of Father, right? This is all after ascension work. So we know the one who literally came in in physical form into Ephesus was Paul. And so when he writes about Christ here, he's speaking figuratively in a sense. So that's something that we must understand. But I would also say that we need to be very cautious when we start talking about the figurative here. And let me tell you why. We, we don't want to push too hard toward the figurative because we know that the Holy Spirit, who is also referred to as the Spirit of God's Son, Galatians 4, 6, and the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9, was literally inside of Paul, empowering his preaching and ministry and so on, Right? So we don't want to push too far into the figurative like, well, Christ was there kind of in a way, but not really. No, actually, in a literal sense, he was there literally because he was inside of Paul, right? So we got to be careful not to push too far. So what Paul does in verse 17 is that he utilizes both figurative and literal language. And I think that verse 17 looks very plain to the eye. It's like, oh, okay, whatever, not a big deal. But I actually believe it's very mysterious. I do. I think it's a mysterious subject that we're dealing with here. Okay, right? Because it says that Christ was there in Ephesus preaching peace, the gospel, but we know he wasn't there in the literal sense because he is seated at the right hand of God, right? The right hand of the Father. But yet again, he was there in a literal sense in the Apostle Paul. Okay, Mind twist, he wasn't there, but he was there, right? So it's a little mysterious how this whole thing works. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father currently. This is absolutely true. And Christ is present in the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit. This is also absolutely true. I think what Paul was pointing to 
in this text is a type of what we call hypostasis, where the Spirit of God takes up residency in a human being, changes the human being, and then begins to work through the human being. That's what hypostasis can mean. The Scriptures teach that all believers are possessed by the Holy Spirit, literally. They are possessed by Him. The Spirit is in them. The Scriptures teach that every believer is a partaker of the divine nature. Okay? What does this mean, that He comes into us and that we're partakers of the divine nature? It means hypostasis. But we must be careful. We must be careful not to take this as far as the Mormons do. Okay, because we do not, because of what's happened here, what God has done, the supernatural hypostasis kind of work, we do not become God. We do not become a God. Okay, this is not a hypostatic union. It's a form of hypostasis where the Spirit of God takes up residency and changes who we are. But it's not that he came into me and now I'm a God. Or... If I keep avoiding Mountain Dew, I will become a god, inherit a planet, have one wife and a lot of kids. This is what Mormons teach. It's a really bizarre, crazy, like if you flip it on, it's, you know, if, if, you, if you listen to what they preach, you should have this music playing in the background. It's very sci-fi weird. I don't get it. But they do believe that there is a hypostatic union that takes place where somehow... You become kind of your human, but you're fully... It's just a weird concept, and that is not at all what he's pointing to here. What our hypostasis means is that we become a new creation, a new person, who does what? Who bears God's attributes, not all of them. We are not holy as he is holy, but we are holy. We, we begin to bear God's attributes. And guess what? For the first time ever in our entire existence, we begin to bear God's image rightly. Okay? Another thing to note is that, so I think he's kind of pointing to that in a way, which is mysterious, but really, really cool. Another thing to note is that Christ did stick primarily to Jews in Palestine during his ministry. Right? I, I mean, there, there were great groups of people who came to listen to him preach and, and these sorts of things. And, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that were Gentiles in those collections and there were centurions and people that he interacted with and did things for. So we don't want to say that he did not minister to Gentiles at all or preach the gospel to him at all, but we need to believe his words in that he had come to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. I mean, this is essentially why he came. Okay, but, but again, let's be cautious even though this is a fact, it doesn't mean that Gentiles, which some would have you believe, are excluded from salvation. Well, he didn't go off into all these other places and do this stuff, and so there is no promise to us Gentiles. That's a ridiculous thing to believe and say, because you know we would not want to base that off of his ministry alone. He came, he had a short amount of time to do ministry, it was all ordained and planned, and he stuck to a particular area, and he actually, I think, put in more foot miles than any of us will in a lifetime, because he kept going like this all over the area, but for the most part, he did not go off into, he did go into the Decapolis, which was a Gentile region, but for the most part, he, he really did stick to Jews. But let us not believe that he only came for the Jew, because I can tell you that some Jews would tell you he only came for the Jew, because we are the only chosen people. Now, I want you to think about the Great Commission. It's one of the greatest evidences of how he's come for every type and every clan, right? What did he? He told his apostles that he was sending them essentially, and essentially not just them, but essentially every believer as a missionary into the world, into every nation, beginning in Jerusalem. Why? To preach the gospel and make disciples, okay? He said, in effect, uh, just in a, in a sort of a parallel way, what we would draw from the Great Commission, this is what he said, in effect, is that God's plan of salvation includes people from every tribe and tongue, right? People from every nation, uh, and so, you know, when we look at what happens here, we, we look at his ministry and how he stuck primarily to Palestine and to Jews, and then we look at the Great Commission. When we look at both together, what we see are two stages of gospel ministry. That's actually what we see. 
There is stage one, the local stage, Jerusalem, Palestine, that region. And there is stage two, the global stage, everywhere else. That's what we see. During his incarnation, right, his own physical in-person ministry, when he walked around the area and did ministry, what did he do? He, Christ launched stage one. This whole gospel thing that we're talking about began with the first stage right in that region. He initiated and launched it. And guess what? In a way, John the Baptist had already begun it in a sense. At least he was proclaiming and prophesying about this one who was to come very soon. And so Christ, in, in, in a sense, launched stage one, the local stage. He preached the gospel to the lost sheep of Israel throughout Palestine. And then before his ascension, he commissioned his apostles to do the same thing, right, to the Jew first, and then to launch stage two, the global stage, preach the gospel and make disciples in all nations. So we see two stages. We see Christ, basically, let me tell you what the inference is. This is what we should draw from verse 17. This is it. This is Paul's point. It's that Christ was and is the active agent in both stages of gospel ministry. Christ was literally present and active during stage one. And Christ was literally present and active during stage two in the Apostle Paul and through the Apostle Paul and through the apostles and through some of the prophets and through guys like Stephen and Philip Deacons and these guys. So that's the point. It's Christ who is active in the first stage. It's Christ who is, who is active during this time in the second stage. It's Christ who is active in the second stage now, okay? This is why Paul wrote, he came and preached peace to you. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand that Christ was their preacher. In other words, uh, he came and preached peace to you. Yeah, I was there, but it was actually Christ who is your true preacher. If you've heard from me, if I've proclaimed God's word to you, God's revelation, you've heard directly from Christ. He is the true preacher. He is the, the, the real church planter. He is your true senior pastor. He is your blesser. I talk about his blessings to you. I present them to you, but they're coming from him. They don't come from me. He is your head. He is your authority. This is what, this is that critical moment in verse 17 where he wants to establish the authority of Christ. Because if what he says is hinged upon and based upon the authority of Christ, is there a greater chance that they'll do what they're supposed to do? Yeah. They need to recognize who their head is just as we do because it's pretty easy to lose sight of that, that we actually have a true preacher and a true head and all these things, right? Because what we tend to do is kind of look out and see people around us and we got our pastor and we got our elders and they're great and whatever, but we got this. But, you know, we actually have ahead we actually have the true preacher we actually have someone at the high position he wanted them to get this he wanted them to understand that he wanted them to understand that it was christ who came to bring them peace peace with god the father and that christ was now exhorting them through his own writing exhorting them commanding them to pursue peace with one another that's where he's headed here. That's been the driving point in all that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Now look at verse 18. So it's pretty amazing, just real quick, just to pause how broad and deep verse 17 is. I had six pages written on it, and it was going to be the whole sermon, and then I realized if I went in that direction, I would probably lose continuity with the rest of it because it all works harmoniously together, and so I erased a whole lot of stuff. And if you want that sermon for $29.95, no, I'm just kidding. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. And this just, it just sort of builds and builds and builds and then kind of gets climactic. It's really awesome. He says, for through him, okay? Remember, everything in Ephesians 1 and 2 that has to do with him, him is Christ. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
Paul said, basically, every believer, Jewish and Gentile, right? Every believer, every type of believer, Jewish or Gentile, has access to God and comes to God through one spirit. This is what he has said. In other words, every believer comes to God in the same way through the same spirit. His point is that believers have equal access, which means that they are at what? What have we been talking about week after week? They're at the same level. Okay, so I want to repeat what I've been saying for the last two or three weeks. Maybe this is the third week in a row that I've said it, right? There is no good. There is no better. There is no best believer. We are all the same. Every believer is on level ground. Every believer is the same to God, right? And, And this is the thing that the Ephesians, apparently, because of how much Paul wrote about it, didn't understand. Some of them must have believed that, that, that they had better access to God through a higher level of piety, through certain rituals like circumcision. Right? I mean, why is he saying this? You, you all come through the same spirit. So obviously, the readers are hearing this and they're saying, so all this extra stuff I've been doing doesn't mean anything? Paul here said, nope, doesn't mean anything. There's no value. You all come in the same way to God, through the same Spirit. Every believer has equal access through one Spirit. Every believer shares the same access. Every believer comes in the same way. Now, I want you to notice how Paul wrote, in one spirit what's the middle word one one there is only one spirit who gives us access to god who brings us to god who's the spirit it's capitalized it's a reference to the holy spirit now we just need to realize what paul said here is an absolutely devastating statement against spiritualists who think that all paths lead to heaven and who think that there are other spiritual mediums and forms that give us access to God. This just annihilates that. He says one spirit. So all these people that are seancing and going and entering into other religions and these things that are trying to get there through some kind of spiritual means, he has just said here, there's only one. There is only one. So it it is a devastating statement against those who think that all paths and all religions and all spiritual forms and all of these sorts of things can get us there. Paul says, absolutely not. It is also a devastating statement against the legalist. It just shoots him right through the heart. Because a legalist thinks that his religion, that his piety, that his rituals, that his good deeds he believes she believes that those things will give him access that's what the legalist believes the legalist takes the scripture and says yeah and then he or she adds a whole bunch of stuff to it well uh, it it might be through one spirit but not really it's a combination of that one spirit and then all of the stuff i do and what has paul said here no way one spirit there's only one spirit that gives us access. And that spirit doesn't have anything to do with circumcision. That spirit doesn't have anything to do with your piety or with other spiritual mediums which are actually demonic. There is an exclusivity here, and I love that. We must know that it is only through the Holy Spirit that we have access. We don't get it through Muhammad. We don't get it through ritual. We don't get it through the Pope's decrees. We don't get it through any of those things. We, we cannot add to the finished work of Christ, which is what the Holy Spirit applies and makes delivery upon. He brings us through that work by grace through faith. So, one spirit. Now, look at 19. 
You guys tracking with me? This is, this, is, this, is, this is God's word. I love it. I don't know about you, but I love it. it it's, just, it's just awesome. And whenever I study and write, I'm just sitting there going, man, I could write so much more, and your sermons are so long. Um, 19, so then you are no longer, listen to this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Oh, man, what a statement. Back in verse 12, Paul explained who the Ephesians were before Christ, right? Um, They were Gentiles. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, right? He had described who they were prior to Christ. In verse 19 here, he tells them who they are in Christ. What we see here is a counterstatement, okay? You were that, and now you are this. And he uses exact opposites, and I love that. He lists two basic things here, right? First, you are fellow citizens with the saints, Okay. Before, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not citizens of God's blessed community, and they were not the recipients of God's blessings that take place in that covenant community, which was called Israel for a long time. It's the church now. So they were aliens. They were aliens. They were strangers, right? And now yet they are fellow citizens with the saints. What does that mean? They've been brought in how? By the blood of Christ. We read that. We studied that. Secondly, uh, they obviously were not covenant members. Are part? They were, what does it say? They were separated from God in the world a little bit earlier. It says that. And now look, number two, the second thing we see in the text, they are now what? Members of what? The household of God total reversal you weren't part of any of this good stuff and now you're actually family members what a reversal this is awesome right here how encouraging well i don't like who i used to be right here they get to this part this is who we are i like this i like this a lot i am a fellow citizen with the saints i've been joined in and brought in i am a citizen of god's kingdom of God's church in a sense and I am now a member of the household of God how wonderful I'm a family member I'm what I'm a child of God I'm a child of God they have been they had been made fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God through the work of Christ on the cross right his blood we studied that And also, right, because what Paul just said in verse 18, they've also been made members and brought in and given access through the access-granting work of the Holy Spirit, right? And we know that even earlier than that, weeks ago, we learned that we enter in. It's the Spirit that brings this to us. He, He brings us in, and we enter in by grace through faith. And so it was by grace through faith that they actually kind of stepped over the threshold into this new life, into this kingdom, into this household, into this family. Spectacular statement in verse 19. I love it. I love it. I love members of the household of God. I love that particular piece of it because marriages, households, and families are being decimated by the devil today annihilated they're just being trashed and many have said then i don't know if they were christians or not but maybe historians or other world leaders who whoever have said throughout recent decades and maybe even earlier than that that the the most surefire way to destroy a country a nation is to destroy the family and this is evidenced by europe it's evidenced, and, and it's being evidenced here now. It is being evidenced here now with the redefining of marriage, which is the starting point for the family. It's supposed to be. Of course, today, you don't have to be married to have a family. 
but you do in the true sense. And so families and marriages and households are just under attack. They're being decimated. I came from a broken home, I, and this was back in the 80s, which in the 80s, uh, it, it was less popular then to get divorced in those things, but it was still there. Um, it was definitely a, a decade of decadence. Terrible. But it's not like it is today. Today it's just way worse. I came from a broken home. Many of you come from a broken, broken home. Uh, dad left or mom bailed or something happened. It's just so prevalent today. Kind of made it my goal not to repeat what my own father did and Quite frankly, if I hadn't gotten saved about 14 years ago, I probably would have done it, even though I had set my heart against it. I was headed there. When your wife starts telling you that, you should listen. Really? I don't think it's that bad. It is. Nah, yes. Okay. And what I love about members of the household of God is the tremendous comfort that it brings. That it's a declaration of who we are now in Christ, and it's a healing balm to those who have come out of a broken home. It is. It's wonderful. What a comfort it is to know that as believers, we belong to a secure household. The household of God, the true church, where true peace and true love and true fellowship and true compassion and true mercy and true forgiveness, where those things exist, where these things exist, the things that are vital to us. Now, I would definitely say that these things are not perfected in the church today because we have a sinful nature and we still make a real mess of things at times. But I will tell you, from experience, that they are evident in the true church. They are. They are. Uh, I would say, uh, with the exception of the way that my own lovely and loving wife has cared for me and loved me, and she's done a great job at that, the church has loved me as well and showed me mercy and compassion, forgiveness, correction, It's all because we are made members of the household of God. The real and true family. The only example of that on earth right now, really, in the deepest sense. And so, as a child of Christ, no matter what you're going through and what you've experienced, no matter how things turn out, and I pray that they turn out right. Know that you are a member of the household of God. Know that. And know that one day all of the things that I've described will be perfected in the household of God, and that'll be when Christ returns, right? It'll be wonderful. Now look at 20. Just thought I'd just kind of hit on that a little bit because I think it's vital and it has an application right now for many of us. Look at 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the corner stone. Oh, what a wonderful statement. Again, right? He's kind of building up to get to this pinnacle point. Boom! That's where he's headed. This particular verse is a reference to the divine revelation that the apostles and prophets taught, which in its written form is the New Testament. The foundation of our citizenship and inclusion in the household of God is not built upon the apostles and prophets themselves, because some in the church or at least they call themselves Christians, would say they're absolute, primarily Catholic, would tell you it's all built upon their backs. But that's not what Paul meant. They are not built upon the apostles and prophets themselves. They are built upon 
what they recorded, what they wrote down, which is the Word of God, the New Testament. We're talking about Scripture here. So we're talking about what we have and who we are, our inclusion, our citizenship, these things, our membership in the household of God. It is built upon what they actually wrote down and recorded, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're talking about New Testament Scripture here. Now, this is a phenomenal reminder that our current position and our future glory are based upon God's promises in His Word, and that our circumstances, no matter how difficult they might be, do not, under any circumstances, change the reality of who we are or the reality of where we are going, okay? Who we are, where we're going, what we are, all based upon this apostolic foundation of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God. I want you to realize what Paul has just said here. Your hope, your stability, everything that is good and blessed and holy and awesome and that is coming to you is based right on Holy Scripture, the revelation that was given through the apostles. Awesome. Which means that it is rock solid, right? We have a terrific foundation, an unshakable foundation based upon Scripture, which is what? The eternal, there's not a point in the future where the Word of God is null and void. God's here now and we got the, 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 the eternal kingdom and His Word. We don't need that. His Word, what does it say in Scripture? It all men are like grass, but his word does what? It endureth how long? Forever and ever and ever and forever's and nevers. Eternity. It just keeps going. It just keeps going. It never, ever pauses, stops, goes to the side. And our promises and our citizenship and our membership in the household of God and all of our blessings and all that we hold dear and all that we're discovering are all based on that word that endures forever. Okay? That should be a game changer for us. It is upon this scriptural foundation. Now, this is also key. It is upon this scriptural foundation that God is building the church of Christ. Okay? It is upon this scriptural foundation, which he's speaking about in this verse, that God is building the church of Christ. In Paul's day, just some little good detail, contextual thing, in Paul's day, many buildings were made from stone. They were made from stone. And once a foundation was laid, a mason would install the corner stone, which was perfectly placed. And not only was it perfectly placed, it was strong enough to support and to distribute the weight of all the other stones above it. If the corner stone was improperly installed or not dense enough, heavy enough, or strong enough to support the other stones the whole structure would eventually come down in a mighty crash, maybe during a windstorm or something of that nature. The first thing God did after laying the foundation for the church, which is what? The revelation of the apostles, the scripture, the New Testament. The first thing that he did after laying the scriptural foundation is he installed the cornerstone, which is who? Christ! How wonderful! This is what he's talking about. Scripture even refers to Christ as the what? The chief? Not just the cornerstone, but the chief cornerstone. Interesting. So what this means is that the church is built upon Christ or built upon the revelation of Christ. And the interesting thing is, is that Christ even told Peter this, the apostle Peter this, didn't he? Remember? Peter declared, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right? Jesus asked. Or somebody said, you know, them out there, they say this about you, and they say this about you, and they think you're this and that. And Jesus says, who do you think I am, Peter? And Peter says, you are Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Right? Oh, right? 
Christ replies to him, it is upon this foundation, that doctrinal statement, that bit of scripture, that that revelation, it is upon that, upon that rock, right, that I shall build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The church is built upon Christ, upon the Son of God, upon the revelation of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Christ is strong enough to hold us up. Christ is strong enough to keep us in place, to keep us secure, right? So much so that all of the forces of hell may blow and blast against the structure and they will never, ever topple it. Never. This is what he says here. Now look at verses 21 to 22. Uh, And these are our last two verses. In whom... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, it is in these two verses that we discover what God is creating for himself in the church. Right there. And this is really cool. It's in those two verses. Upon Christ, upon the cornerstone, upon the chief cornerstone, God is putting together a whole structure which consists of every believer. And what is he doing with this structure? He is fashioning for himself what? A holy temple and a dwelling place on earth. This is what he has said. This is spectacular this is incredible now i want you to think about something according to my research there have only been two dwelling places on earth for god what are they the tabernacle and what else the temple at jerusalem those are the two places that god decreed and ordained and set up to establish like a place for him on earth if you want to connect with me And it's not that he isn't everywhere in a sense, he is, but this is the connect point. This is where you will find my spirit and this is where you will worship me. You worship everywhere in a sense, but right here is where you come together to make the sacrifices. This is where you enter into my presence. And the first place was the tabernacle that got drug all over creation, a mobile tent, but it was a really beautiful one. And then you have the temple, and there were several of them that you know, built and destroyed, a couple of them that, that happened with, but that was the other place of connection, the dwelling place of God, where a person could come and worship and connect with him in a unique way, experience his presence, only two places. And I was speculating that maybe the Garden of Eden was also a dwelling place because God did what? He walked with them in the what? The cool of the garden. So in a way, that could have been, right? But I think, technically speaking, we see two. And what did we just read about? There is a third dwelling place. The church. A third dwelling place, a church. Let me give you the mechanics of this. When Christ died on the cross, he established a new covenant. Okay? According to this new covenant, God would no longer dwell in a temple, but in the hearts of his people. This is why the veil in the temple was torn into it, ripped in half. It was the veil that divided the, you know, one section from the holiest of holies where God's presence was manifested. This is why it tore in half. It ripped from top to bottom. Nobody could have done it from the bottom. From the bottom up, it came down from the top down. When Christ died on the cross, that veil ripped. What did that signify? It signifies God's exit from the temple. I'm out of here. I'm out. Of course, it doesn't. It's way more beautiful than, I'm out. That's my version of it. But that's what, that's what we see there. We see him 
leaving, leaving. Under the new covenant, God enters his people and dwells in them by the Holy Spirit, thus making them his dwelling place on earth. Phenomenal. Now, I want you to look at a couple of things. We're getting close to the end here. Look at how Paul described the work of God. He wrote, being joined together. Believers are being carefully added to the structure and put into place. This is a delicate, precise work of God because it is meant to last forever. Okay? It is, if you will, an eternal structure in a sense. And I would like to add that God is a master builder. If you go to Europe by chance, and I know some in this room have been there, and I know Paul was back there years ago, and I know my wife was born, born in Wiesbaden, Germany, but throughout Europe, there are beautiful churches, beautiful, magnificent, breathtaking cathedrals throughout Europe, and many of them took hundreds and hundreds of years to build. There might even be some of them that aren't even finished yet. They feature beautiful, incredible architecture, just mind-blowing architecture, not like the cookie-cutter homes we have here that are just gorgeous. Art frescoes that would blow your mind. Uh, stained glass, you know, just hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of square yards of it. I mean, it's just, these places are just magnificent. They're gorgeous. They're breathtaking. But let me tell you, they, none of them, not one of them is as beautiful, is as beautiful or as stunning as the true temple of God, the church. It's beautiful to God. It's beautiful to us. It's, it's, it's comprised of people. It's amazing. Now look at how Paul described the nature of God's work. This is imperative. He wrote, grows into a what? Holy temple. God is holy and his dwelling place must be holy. You go back and look at the New Testament, there were so many different little rituals and cleaning things and all this stuff that was set up to keep the tabernacle, the temple holy, to make sure that it wasn't defiled by nimbuses who came there to worship or the priests themselves. The idea is that the place of God, because he is holy, as the angels say, holy, 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 triple holy, super high level, highest level of holy, that means that his dwelling place must therefore be holy too. The good news is, is that God sees us as holy because of Christ, and he is also making us holy through sanctification. But I want you just to think about your life for a moment. Is it characterized by holiness? It should be. Why? Because you are a, if you're a believer, you are a part of this holy temple that we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, and Veronica read it earlier. Thank you for that, Veronica. Paul exhorted the Corinthians to put away with their sexual immorality. Why? Because as believers, they were a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so this whole thing is growing into a holy temple for God. One day it will be perfected. But man, I think the implication for us right now, the application is pursue with all your might holiness because holy is the temple of the Lord, which we should be. And we are viewed that way with him. It's awesome. It's fixed. But we also have to pursue it in a sanctifying way, that we fight the flesh and battle the flesh. You know what the battle of holiness is or what the, how we get there in the literal sense now? It's through dying on the cross. It's taking up the cross each day and sacrificing our desires and these things and these fleshly things. We sacrifice them. That's our true worship to God. It talks about it in, I think, Romans 12. That's... Our spiritual act of worship to God is to die to self and to sacrifice the sexual immorality and these things that give us pleasure, that satisfy our flesh. We need to pursue holiness. I don't think holiness is important in the church today. It is in the true church, but it isn't in the broader sense because believers are going crazy. Look at how Paul presented oneness again. We're almost done. He wrote, being built together, being built together. The Jewish believers in Ephesus and the Gentile believers in Ephesus were part of the same construction project. They were 
the building materials and not the cornerstone. <laughs> they were common stones in this structure. We are all common stones in this holy temple in the church. And let me tell you, just because we're common stones and we're on level ground and we're the same to God, that's a glorious, amazing thing. Why? Because I believe, and I think everyone in this room would absolutely believe and state as well, is that it is so much better to be a common stone in the temple, the holy temple of God, than a crumbling stone in this world. Look at the alternative. What do you mean? I can't be a chief cornerstone in the church? No, there's only one. You know what? But if we believe in enough rituals and do enough things, we think we're advancing. We think we're a better stone. This is what Paul is defeating here. We are all common stones in this wonderful, holy temple, this dwelling place structure. And it is far better to be a common stone in the temple of God than a crumbling stone in this world. Let's wrap it up. Look at the phrase, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, one last time. This is what we are if you are in Christ. That's what you are if you are in Christ. Together, all Christians, together, we are a dwelling place for God. Yes, individually, but together we make this up. Together we make it up. Christ is in me, but together, all together, we all form this structure. As individuals, we're just stones, but we're joined together. And so we together are this dwelling place for God. Now, I want you to think about how peace, unity, and oneness play an important part in that. God does not dwell in the midst of chaos. He does not. Why? Because God is a God of order. Now, that's not to say that God cannot and does not enter chaos and take action because he does whenever he wants to intervene and desires to do that. He can step right into chaos and bring peace. He does that. He steps right into the chaotic life and behavior of an unbeliever and intervenes, does he not? But I'm going to tell you this, he does not dwell in chaos. He can enter it, but there's a difference between entering it periodically and doing things in it and dwelling in it 24-7. He does not dwell in it. And if we do not have peace, if we are not unified, if we are not one, how can God, who is a God of order, dwell in our midst and display his beauty and attributes? How can we rightly display God, be rightful image bearers in the midst of tumult and warfare and disagreement and strife and disunity? How can we possibly act like and just, you know, this temple, this together, this oneness thing, when we have all of these horrible things happening, these relational things, how can we rightly display God to this world? We cannot. This was Paul's exhortation, warning to the Ephesians and to the surrounding churches. And it is his warning to us, but not really, right? Because God is the author of Scripture, and who is the true preacher? You have not heard from me today. Maybe some of the corny jokes. You see, that's the, the thing that we need to not miss. So often we come to a church and we listen to a sermon, we rate them, well, that was a one, that was a 10, that should never be preached again. I like this style of preaching, well, I like his style of preaching, I don't like him because all he does is yell. This is what we do, we have a rating system, and I'm going to tell you, if, if the guy who is in the pulpit, the man was in the pulpit and he was proclaiming to you the scripture. It was Christ speaking to you. What'd you miss? Because of your rating system. I've been a fool with this stuff. I did this at my last church. Shame on us. Because Christ, in a literal sense, came inside of Paul and he preached peace, the gospel to the Ephesians. 
And when, when I preach the word, when I preach the scripture, Christ is preaching the scripture to you. And Rick Countryman at Big Valley is preaching this. Christ is preaching the scripture through him. It's Christ. It's Christ. Christ is the preacher. Christ is the one who is exhorting us here to pursue with all our might peace, unity, and oneness. Because we want God to be at home in his dwelling place and to be glorified and to display his beauty and salvation to this chaotic world. May we heed the warning of Christ today. May we do what he has said. Amen.